Today we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 23 and verses 1 through 12. Page 1536 in your pew Bibles. Matthew 23 verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Thus ends our reading of God's authoritative word. May all who hear it seek not their own glory, but the glory of God. We have reached what is known as the fifth major discourse in Matthew's Gospel. And just like the Sermon on the Mount, it it is a long one. It spans three chapters. Now when you look at these five discourses, you, you will see that each one is about the kingdom. In chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, it was all about kingdom living. The, the discourse that we find in chapter 10 was about kingdom mission. In chapter 13, we received parables from Jesus, all about kingdom growth. And then in chapter 18, we learned what it meant to be great in the kingdom of God. And now today, we begin what may for some and probably most be the most difficult of the five. For it deals with kingdom judgment. And I'll be frank, the the language that is used by our Lord in this discourse is harsh. It's not how we're used to hearing Jesus speak. For he he will say words of divine warning, condemnation, and God's wrath. He will utter sentences that will make us cringe when we hear them. And that's what they're supposed to do. Christ is intentionally trying to make us uncomfortable in our own skin. Because he knows that that is what is best for us. You see, just because a word is harsh doesn't mean that it isn't valuable. It doesn't mean that it isn't loving. These words, they have a purpose. They're there to shape you. They're there to mold you. They're there to correct you and to guide you. 
And they are there to increase your faith in Jesus Christ, making you wise unto salvation. And so my advice to you as we go through this discourse is to not ignore them. Not to shove them away because they, they aren't uplifting. But to let them truly sink in and expose what is deep in your own heart. And that way Christ will transform you. Now, when we break up this discourse, what we find is that, that, there, that it has this escalating thrust in, in three dimensions. Now, what do I mean by this? I, I mean that the scale of God's judgment expands outward in categories of people, geographic regions, and time itself. So in chapter 23, which we'll begin the first part of today, Jesus is dealing with his present age a, and a localized judgment upon a specific group of people, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He then expands outward in chapter 24, describing a, a judgment upon the nation of Israel as a whole in a time known as the end of the age. And then in chapter 25, Jesus finishes his off this discourse with three parables, each one describing a final judgment upon all people from all nations. With that being said, let's, let's look into our text for today. Now, if you remember, it, it was Passover week, and Jesus had already entered into Jerusalem, and he had established himself as the Messiah. And yet, his authority was being challenged by the Jewish religious leaders. And if you recall, Jesus had given to these men three parables, each one warning them not to reject his authority, lest the kingdom of God be taken from them and given to someone else. But these men did not listen, did they? Instead, they, they themselves put forth three theological challenges in an effort to undermine Christ's authority. And yet, in response to those challenges, Jesus then asked them a simple, simple question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And he then showed them from the scriptures that the Messiah had to be more than just a man. More than just the son of David but that he was their Adonai, the Son of God, this divine ruler that had come down from heaven and is therefore authoritative. And this is what sets up the backdrop to the denouncement that we are about to hear. For Jesus will give his critique to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Let's look again at verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The first thing we must know is that Jesus was addressing both the crowds and his disciples. 
And so this was a public decry upon these religious leaders. And he was calling out specifically the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, while it sounds like he's speaking about two groups of people, that's, that's not what he meant by this. For the former, the, the teachers of the law, speaks of a specific title. While the latter, the Pharisees, describes a theological position. Imagine if Jesus said it this way. The, the pastors and the Calvinists sit in Moses' seat. Pastor is a title. And Calvinist is a theological position. And and this was the thrust of what Jesus was saying. You see, the the, the teachers of the law, also known as the scribes, they they were similar to the pastors of our day. They were considered the experts in, in God's word and thus took positions of authority within Jewish society. And the majority of them held to this pharisaical theology. A theology that interpreted scripture through a works-based mentality. And during Jesus' day, these men had gained control over the majority of the synagogues. And this is what Jesus meant when he said that they sit in the seat of Moses. They were the ones who controlled the teaching of God's word. You see, there there was a, a literal stone seat at the front of these synagogues. where where the one who was teaching from God's word would sit. And the people called this the seat of Moses. Now, the NIV doesn't quite capture the force of Jesus' words here. For the verb to sit, uh, it's in the aorist indicative active, which it simply means that it's indicating that they took upon this action themselves. Uh, I think uh, the NASB gets to the heart of what Jesus meant here. Look, Look at how the NASB words it. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Have seated themselves. And so we see this was not a position that was given to them. Rather, they had appointed themselves to carry out this important, important task. Instead of God calling a man to stand before his people and to speak, these pharisaical leaders took it upon themselves to fulfill this duty. And as we'll soon see, their reasoning for doing so was motivated out of, both, out of their desire for both recognition and for power. But when Jesus says you must obey them and do everything they tell you, what does he mean by this? Doesn't this contradict things he said earlier in Matthew's gospel? Again, context is key. That's what we talked about this morning a little bit in our, in our Bible study, context. Yes, we, we have seen elsewhere in Matthew's gospel where Jesus warned his disciples, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Be wary of their teaching." And one of his main worries was was their man-made traditions. Things that they taught that were not from God's word. But when they sat in the seat of Moses, when they taught from that position in the synagogue, they were limited to the Old Testament texts and nothing more. 
And, and this is the context of what Christ was saying. So long as what they taught was consistent with Scripture, consistent with God's Word, then you were to obey them in everything that they tell you to do. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus told them not to do what they do. For, for by any observable standards, these men would have been meticulously following the law. I mean, one would think that, that Jesus would want his followers to be just as steadfast, just as obedient. But that's not the case. And as we go further into this chapter, we'll see why. But for now, let's just, let's just say that these teachers of the law neglected the weightier matters of God's commands. Things such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. They did their good deeds out of a sense of pride rather than out of a love for God. And thus they tied up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they were not willing to lift a finger. This is where their man-made traditions come, come into play. These heavy loads were the extra non-biblical rules that they would place upon men, weighing them down. Rules such as a man can only journey only 2,000 cubits out of his house on a Sabbath day. And it's not that these men weren't willing to follow these man-made rules themselves, because they did. But in their lack of charity, they were unwilling to, to help those who were struggling to do the same. They refused to lift up a fellow brother who had collapsed under the heavy, heavy burden that they had placed upon them. Again, they were driven by pride and not love. Look, look at verse 5. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. Everything they do is for men to see. Here, Jesus demonstrates the motives of these men. And he begins with how they dress. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. What are phylacteries, you ask? It's a good question. Phylacteries were these small leather boxes that, that would either be attached to one's arm or, or, or their forehead. And typically, there would be four of them each one containing a different portion of Scripture that was written on a little piece of parchment. And, now the, and the reason that they did this was because of what Moses had written. Look, look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 8. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now, whether or not God meant for his people to literally tie them to their hands and their foreheads is up for debate. But this was the practice of the Pharisees. So when Jesus talked about phylacteries, these teachers of the law literally had verses attached to their body, stored in these little 
leather boxes. But when Christ said that they were wide, he, he wasn't saying that their boxes were bigger. Rather, that the, the straps that they used were broadened in order to stand out in the crowd. In other words, they were showy and extravagant. And they would do the same thing with their tassels. Now these tassels were also worn to help people remember the commands of the Lord. Look at Numbers 15, verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corner of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lust of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all the commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. These emblems, if you will, these phylacteries and these tassels, what they had become was sort of a, a status symbol for man's piety. They were badges of honor, if you will, demonstrating to the world just how holy a man was. And these teachers of the law made sure that it was known that they were holy. But it wasn't just in how they dressed. Look, at, look back at our chapter. Look at verse 6. They loved the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Here we see that they loved to be seated in the places of honor. Now, typically at a, at a feast, this would be either to the right or to the left of the host. And in the synagogues, they, they would want to be seated on the benches that were, that were next to the seat of Moses. They wanted to be seen by men. They wanted to feel important. But there's more. Look at verse 7. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. To have the title rabbi meant that one was a master teacher. It demonstrated that that person had become an expert in God's word. It was a title of respect. It was a title of authority. And what Jesus was saying here is that these teachers of the law, they, they actively sought out opportunities to be called rabbi. That they would go into the marketplace, not to purchase anything, but to be seen and to be greeted. They wanted to hear that word, rabbi, used before their name. To sum things up, what we see in these verses is, is that their true motive in following the law was to be seen by men. And this was evident in how they dressed, and their seeking places of honor, and in their looking for recognition through titles. In essence, they loved the praises of the masses more than they loved God himself. Now, it's easy for us to criticize these men. But let's be honest. Are we any different? What are our status symbols 
that we have today? How do we demonstrate to the world our righteousness? One of the newest forms of this is on social media, is it not? Let me ask you, over the past few months, how many pictures have you seen of people holding up their vaccination cards? Don't you see how righteous I am? I've done my civic duty. And we see this same pride with the anti-vaxxers as well. Do we not? I saw this one picture of a woman who, who held up her own handmade sign that read, Not Vaccinated. So depending on which crowd you roll with, these, these things are done in order to seek the approval of men. Praise me because of my good deeds. And let's face it, online virtue signaling has become the new fashion for piety. But we still do it the old-fashioned way as well, do we not? Seeking titles and looking for the best seats. That guy with the PhD insisting that every person call him doctor. Those people who pay the big bucks to, fit in, to sit in first class or to have the front row seats. And this is the way of the world, is it not? And yet it can creep into the church as well. Let me ask you, why did you come to church today? Why are you here? Is it to praise God or to be seen? Why are you dressed the way you are dressed? Is it to honor your Father in heaven? Or do you feel the pressure to look the part? Perhaps you are a deacon or a trustee. Why have you taken upon yourself such a title? Is it to serve your Lord? Or is there some other reason behind it? For those of you who help out in, the, in our food ministry, why do you do what you do? Is it for God's glory or is it for your own? And I'm not exempt from these questions. In fact, I am even more at risk as your pastor. For I'm wearing this suit and this tie. I sit in this lofted seat every Sunday. And I have a title that garners respect. If there is anybody in this room who is sitting in the seat of Moses, it is me. And so I need to check my own heart. Why do I do what I do? Is it to be seen by men? Am I looking for your praises? I'll be honest with you, the temptation's there. And there are times when I need to stop myself and repent. For when my service becomes less about a love for God and more about a love for myself, then I am in sin. And there have been times when this is exactly the case. Well, Jesus has some words for both me and for you. Look at our next verses. Look at verses 8 through 12. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. 
The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You have only one master. And you have only one father. And you have only one teacher. What does Jesus mean by this? Should we forego all titles? Should I have you all stop calling me pastor? I'm pretty sure that's not what he was getting at here. For when you look throughout the New Testament, we, we see the use of titles within the church. There were apostles. There were elders and deacons. There were evangelists and teachers. If Jesus had meant for us to throw away all titles, then the early church did a horrible job at this. And so I don't think that's what he meant here. Again, context. And given the context of our passage, what Jesus is communicating here is the fallacy of the teachers of the law whose motivation was to be seen by men. They exalted themselves because they thought the kingdom was all about them. Christ says no. Don't go seeking titles for titles' sake. For you have only one master, and you have only one father, and you have only one teacher, the Christ. Dear friends, the the kingdom isn't about you. It is about God. Listen, when when you turn the kingdom into this game where each person is trying to elevate themselves, then you've lost the whole point. For the focus is no longer on God, but yourself. And that's why Jesus had such harsh words for these teachers of the law. For though on the outside they, they, they looked like a shiny new penny, like men who had put God first. And yet deep within they had no love for him. For they had built their own kingdom where they sat upon the throne. This is not to be the case for those who are true disciples of Jesus. The greatest title that one can hold is the title of servant. Think of it this way. If one holds the title of pastor, and yet he does not serve God or his church, then then what good is that title? It's just a placeholder for vain conceit. And yet at the same time, if one holds the title of, say, mother or father, it's Father's Day, right? And then serves God by caring for their children and raising them to love the Lord their God, then what greater honor is there than to be called mother or father? For it is through their humble service that they will be lifted up. Here's a simple rule to follow. Don't seek The title. Seek to serve the Lord. And whatever title is fitting, it will be given to you. This is the example of our Lord, is it not? We we have this one who became the servant of all. And his service was not in the pursuit of a title. He did not look for any seat of honor. 
nor were his good deeds seeking the approval of men. No. And what is crazy is that, unlike us, he had every right to pursue those things. But that's not what he did. Instead, he humbled himself. And he did so by putting on the garment of human flesh. And even more, he humbled himself further by dying a criminal's death upon a cross. And he did all that in service to you. You see, while, while you strive to gain honor for yourself, Christ died for you. For it was for your sins, for your pride, as well as mine, that he went to the cross. He did not do this for his own glory, but for the glory of his Father in heaven, and out of a love for you. And now, this greatest of servants, he is exalted above all others, is he not? For he has risen from the dead and is now clothed in glory. And he has a seat of honor. He sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And he holds a title that is unlike anyone else. King of kings and Lord of lords. He did not seek these things, but they were given to him. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You have one master, and you have one father, and you have one teacher, the Christ. So let all that you do be for his glory. Let us pray. Father, we confess to you now that our, our motives, they're, they're not always pure. In fact, most of the time they're not. Even at our best, our, our good deeds are tainted. In our pride, we, we do desire the approval of men. We confess this to you now. Help us to repent. Convict us by your Holy Spirit so that we may seek your glory and not our own. May our service to you be just that, service to you. For you are our master and our father and our teacher. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.